Welcome to Pharmacy to Dose, the critical care podcast, a partner of the ACCP Critical Care PRN and a member of the Pharmacy Podcast Network. And I'm your host, Nick Peters. And wherever you are and however you are listening, thank you. Now, this is the trial of the week where I review a landmark article that was published this month in medical history. Carolyn McGee Bell is going to join us to discuss the research publication she was first author on, The Insidious Harm of Medication Diluents. So this was her PGY2 residency project, so we'll get tips on that for any learners. And that's why you see so many familiar names from the University of Kentucky if you're pulling that article as I'm talking now. So as always, we're going to set the scene, right? What was... What was the state of critical care in terms of balanced fluids versus saline at the time of this study? We're going to dive more into the trial of the week itself, right? This article um, and talk about the trial design. What were some challenges? What did they ultimately find? And then where are we now? What's our ultimate takeaway? If there was something Carolyn could change, what would it be? We got a great one today, folks. So no more waiting. Let's go. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. And with us now is Carolyn McGee-Bell. Now, Carolyn is the MSICU clinical pharmacy specialist at MUSC. Still haven't settled on, is it Twitter, X, what have you, but you can find her there at D. Carolyn, how are you doing today? Good, how are you doing? Doing fantastic. Now, we we have a lot to get into because I think this is an awesome article, right? First, you're your first author. Now, I, I, I want you to set the scene because patients were enrolled in this study in 2016. The article published in August 2018. So I think some of the people listening might be like, wait, we like, where's the country? We know saline is bad. So where were we at the time as a critical care community with our balanced versus saline? Like, were we at the same place then that we are now? We were definitely not in the same spot we are now. So to kind of set the scene, um, the split trial from the ANZIX group had just been published around the time that we were setting up this trial. Um, And then SALT and SMART actually came out after we submitted for publication um, so as soon as those came out, I was like, oh, dang it, now I got to edit the manuscript, but it was also excellent because then, you know, like your research is, um, you know, timed well, is going to get a lot of traction is current with, um, current themes. So it was exciting that at the same time, I was like, oh gosh, now I need to <laughs> come back and add stuff to the intro and discussion. Yeah. Just, just more work. Cause it feels like, um, when you're, when you're trying to publish, publish research that you did as it feels like it's a burden just finishing and then knowing you have to go back and make all these changes. It's just like, Oh, Oh, <laughs> but ultimately I think a good thing because it, it meant that it was timely. Um, and that 
I think what it found was that medications play a large role. And I don't, those trials, because they were published before um, this one came out, still didn't really address that. So it's still definitely a gap. Um, so, and then still useful. Now, this was a prospective study, which like is impresses, impressive in and of itself. And you did this as a uh, critical care pharmacy resident, double impressive. So for those listening, uh, to the best of your memory, what was like the general timeline of this research study? Like, how were you able to like logistically do this in a year? First of all, um, I can't take credit for the design. I was very lucky to have some extremely ambitious and accomplished preceptors in the MICU with Alex Flannery and Melissa Thompson Baston. So, um, Alex was kind of the mastermind behind a lot of this. Um, but the idea kind of started on one of my PGY1 topic discussions when I was in the MICU with him. Um, and it was just kind of the, um, the, the perfect storm of everything falling into place. So um, I early committed, um, stayed at the same place for um, PGY1 and PGY2. So I was able to get a jump start and do some, some legwork as a PGY1, which included, you know, getting our interdisciplinary colleagues on board. We had a new medical director in the MICU who was um, really into research and really open to collaborating with people. We had just opened these beautiful new MICUs in this new tower and um, had just expanded our nursing staff. We had just hired like six new MICU pharmacists who are all really um, energized and excited about being involved. So it was kind of the, the perfect storm of everything falling into place. Um, but I was a lot uh, able to do a lot of the legwork as a PGY one, looking at you know what, um, how would we logistically even go about changing our diluents from normal saline to D five? Like, do we need IP support? Are we going to have to do this manually? How do we get our central pharmacists on board? How do we operationalize this? Are there any medicines that we should not be changing? Um, so I was able to do a lot of that as a PGY one. Um, and then we started enrolling people um, or collecting on uh, basically our no change cohort in September of 2016. So September of my 20 of my uh, PGY2 year. Um, then we did a, a week washout period and then started changing everybody to D5 in November, December timeframe. Um, so it was actually really nice about this research design is that all my data was like done and dusted by December. Um, and I had some co-residents who were doing retrospective projects who still hadn't gotten their data back from um, whoever pulled our data or they were still waiting for their IRB to be done. So I was able to, to do a lot of that on the front end. Um, so that worked out pretty well. So uh, you mentioned research mentors, by the way, uh, quick plug, not shocking Two of our two of our first three trials of the week. This is a number four feature, right? Melissa Thompson Bassin and Alex Flannery. So that completely makes sense what you're saying there. But you mentioned that the the design was kind of already um, the the pieces were in place a little bit essentially. But what did you thinking about how unique of a design this is? Like how in the discussion towards the end of your PGY one year as you're, as you're planning for this, what kind of considerations and things did you have to think of when designing a study so unique like this? Yeah, absolutely. So we had to think about like, how are we going to keep track of all of these patients prospectively? 
Um, so we intentionally kind of set up my year so that I was in the MICU a bunch during this time frame. I had December as a research month, so yeah. I got to, you know, plug and chug a lot of the data. Um, we had all these new MICU pharmacists that had just started, so they helped a lot with making sure that everyone was kept track of. They would turn in their data collection sheets to me, um, and then I would kind of collect from there, or they would collect if they had time, but you know how things can get in the ICU. Um, we also um, proactively got some students on board. So Alex precepted some research students that were able to help me with making sure we were prospectively collecting all of this data. Um, so there was a lot of planning that went into it. Um, but I think one of the challenges was like keeping track of everything. Um, we ended up doing this uh, like manually, like they would write the patient's name and MRN on a piece of paper. And I had this whole spreadsheet of things that we would, plug in by hand and then I would, you know, type it into Excel. And so my office looked like freaking insanity because I had 426 of these sheets just kind of all over the place. Um, <laughs> I'm picturing the setting of, of uh, it's always sunny of Charlie in the mailroom and he's got all the stuff on the wall and he's like trying to find a conspiracy. It's, it's wild. This isn't that long ago. This isn't that long ago that yeah. you were doing all this by hand. Um, I didn't think of the, I thought of how, you know, when I was thinking about it, it makes sense the the worry about how being able to track people, but then all the things with that, yeah, I can only imagine what your office looked like during that time. Um, but My uh, office that I shared with my nine PGY1 <laughs> co-residents who were, you know, like, what are you doing? <laughs> probably... Probably looking at him like, is this, am I signing up for, for a, another year? Is this what's going to look like? Right. They're like, probably, <laughs> they're, they're second guessing some things. Um, but so the trial, let's talk a little bit about it. I'll introduce it, bring in the methods. Carolyn's going to correct me on anything I miss and then tell us what sh they ultimately found. So insidious harm of medication diluents as a contributor to cumulative volume and hyperchloremia, a prospective open-label sequential period pilot study. So published August 2018 in Critical Care Medicine. So what that means is if you're an SACM member, you have access to this paper. Uh, and then, of course, your hospitals, I can't imagine people not. So this should be pretty easy for, for most to access if you haven't uh, already heard about this awesome study. Now, single center, prospective, open-label, sequential period pilot study in MICU patients. All right. Wait, Carolyn, before we go any further, let's, is it MICU or is it MICU? I'm going to let you weigh in here. It's MICU for sure. For yep. sure. Yep. All right. All right. <laughs> we can continue. That was a test. Carolyn passed. That's exactly right. MICU is uh, the correct answer. So um, the trial period, September 1st, 2016 through January 8th, 2016, um, the unique design, right? Sequential period pilot study, right? So uh, different things are happening in sequences. So from September through the end of October, the historical diluent abnormal saline was used. No interventions were made, just tracking and data collection, it appears. So then there was a one-week washout period. And then patients were enrolled from November through January with the medication diluents changed to D5W via a pharmacist-driven order verification protocol. Put a pin in this, folks. We're going to come back to this. We will be revisiting that. Um, excluded patients completely makes sense, right? Hyperglycemic crises, acute brain injury, right? Things that we know that the um, uh, something like D5 is going to the hypotonic could be an issue, 
Um, patients could also be taken off the protocol at any time, right, based on some position preference or a change in, in the patients themselves. Uh, primary outcome, the occurrence of hyperchloremia in daily labs. 426 patients were enrolled. Dang, Carolyn, that's amazing. So 216 in the saline group, 210 in the D5 group. And for all essential purposes, to me, they were similar. Like it says that there are statistically significant differences in sodium and chloride, but it's both just 1.5 millimoles per liter. Feels like a statistically, probably not clinically significant difference. Uh, okay, Carolyn, what did I correct me on what I messed up with? And then what did you all ultimately find uh, in your results? Yeah, so I want to talk a little bit more about the design too. Like why the heck did we decide to do this prospectively. Yep, and a lot of that was because, um, I mean, all of us have been in the ICU when you have a patient who's crashing and like they get some fluid boluses, but like maybe the order doesn't go into the computer. Oh, yeah. um, so by doing it prospectively, we were able to capture a lot more of that. Because one of our big concerns was not being able to accurately capture ins and outs for all these patients. Um, so we were able to do that by collecting prospectively. And then we were able to do the intervention of changing, uh, of changing to D5. Um, so that's a little bit of why we chose to do it the way we did so that we could capture all those little things that like maybe aren't documented in, in the electronic medical record all the time. And then if I ever had any questions about like, what was going on here? And you could just go to bedside real quick and talk with the bedside nurse or with the physician that was taking care of them or the um, advanced practice provider that was taking care of them. So that allowed, we think, for a lot more accurate reflection of what the patient's like true volume in was. Yeah, 100%. Um, and then what we found, um, so one of the biggest things we found is that medications contribute a huge amount to the overall volume that these patients were getting. So in this seven-day yeah. time frame, yeah, seven-day time frame, 63% of their overall volume was from medications. Um, and then uh, the patients that got abnormal saline, as we now like to call it, um, had <laughs> higher rates of hyperchloremia. And that effect was even more pronounced in patients who got more uh, abnormal saline. Um, and then we also chose to compare it to D5, even though some of these other studies had used you know, balance crystalloid as their comparators when you're talking about fluid boluses. One, because there's essentially no compatibility or stability data for admixtures in um, balance fluid. But also we thought that maybe there would be a more pronounced effect in um, a, a development of hyperchloremia because you're going from 153 milliequivalents of chloride to zero, as opposed to going from like 154 to, um, you know, 98 or whatever is yeah. an LR and uh, forget the makeup of plasma light, but a little bit more than that, 96, something, something to that effect. Um, so you have a, a much bigger differential. So we thought that we could maybe see a more pronounced effect in development of hyperchloremia. You mentioned in the design um, that diluents were changed via a pharmacist driven protocol. So by the way, this is probably the question I've been looking forward to the most. What type of bribery took place for your pharmacy, <laughs> for the pharmacists in Central Pharmacy? Is there like a famous Lexington donut or sub shop that was used to keep everyone on your side as they're changing these orders from, I mean, November through the beginning of January? So a pretty busy time of the year just in hospitals mm -hmm. in general. 
Yeah. So there was a bakery in Lexington that was called McGee's. And I feel like I really should have gotten a discount because oh. that was my last name at the time. Yeah. But couldn't swing, couldn't swing that on the resident budget, unfortunately. <laughs> um, but we were really lucky to have some just really incredible central pharmacists. Um, one of them is one of the authors on the paper, um, Gavin Howington. And now he's you know, transitioned into an emergency medicine specialist role. Um, but he was super engaged, super motivated, um, and was able to really help facilitate logistically what's this going to look like? How are we going to, you know, stock D5 in the the med rooms for the nurses and make sure that our vasopressor kits that we had in the Omni cell also had D5 with them? Um, and as a resident, um, we took 24-hour in-house on call. And so when we did that, we staffed in the central pharmacy from 7 to 11 so I kind of had this unspoken agreement with all the pharmacists in Central that, like, when I was on call and down there, I would just do all the things and they could kind of, you know, <laughs> take, take it yeah, easy yeah, for that yeah. four-hour period. So that's, that's better kinda, than a donut. That was, that's better than a bakery for yeah. sure. <laughs> so we had a little bit of an unspoken agreement for, for uh, that time frame and beyond because I felt like I owed them for sure. Uh, yeah. And, uh, the supplementary appendix E table one goes into all of the, I mean, anti-infectives, vasoactives, electrolytes, steroids, right? Your other kind of things like octreotides. So, I mean, it wasn't like, it wasn't like it was just, you know, our pressors, for example, there was a, a lot that went into it. So feels like the, uh, the real MVP. So shout out Gavin and all the other, um, pharmacists who, who helped in the main pharmacy. Awesome. Awesome there. Um, and they get mentioned, they do get mentioned in the acknowledgements as well. So you shouted them out in multiple, in multiple places. And the way that it worked while we were at Kentucky was that the, you know, the, um, Mickey pharmacists were the ones that were verifying all the orders like on rounds during the day. And we also had like a, a Mickey evening person that helped with a lot of this. Um, so, Originally, we were hoping to get some IT support with switching everybody over to D5. But yeah. since we were only doing this in the MICUs, it's like you couldn't just like turn a switch and like have it not affect like the SICU patients yeah. or the neuro ICU patients or like the medicine floor patients. Um, so we had to do it all manually. So um, we, you know, had all these MICU pharmacists that we had just hired. And, um, you know, I, I made a list of everything that was compatible in D5 that we could change. So there were some limitations. You couldn't change like Amphodapto, like those types of things because they're not compatible. Yeah. There were a couple of premixes that we didn't want to change just because that would have just added a, substan a substantial amount of uh, labor for a lot of our pharmacy technicians in the IV room. So there were some intentional things that we did not change. Um, but yeah, a lot of it was done uh, by the MICU pharmacist, by our central pharmacist. Um, and I was just super lucky to be in an environment where everyone is super supportive and, and really wanted to, to help. So with the higher focus on fluid stewardship now, um, like example, uh, the the median LR bolus volume received was zero, right? So do you think you'd see the same results with this study if if you did it now kind of with our our semi-universal, maybe not change, but like we're kind of scooting back away from, from saline. Yeah. Um, 
So what's interesting about that question is I've always wanted to repeat this study as like a multi-center study, yeah. but it just never really happened. Um, you know, uh, pretty soon after this, we had that um, hurricane that hit Puerto Rico and like wiped out like oh, all of our yeah. mini bags. We had no mini bags. Right? It was trying to Ivy push everything after that. Exactly. And um, that was one of the trends that actually ended up helping a lot with fluid stewardship is a lot of people were moving towards um, we're going to, one, use whatever diluents available at the time, given the shortage, yeah. and two, figure out if there's all these things that we can give IV push. Um, so I think, in general, the landscape of critical care has changed um, over the five years since this has been published, or seven years since we really started enrolling people, um, or um, started the this trial, because um, people are so much more focused on the de-resuscitation aspect, fluid stewardship not giving maintenance fluids anymore, sticking with boluses, doing volume assessments for these patients to see if they um, if they need more volume or not. And then more specifically with meds, as you alluded to, a lot of things are moving to IV push. I know you talked with Alex and Aaron about thiamine, yep. um, and we have a lot of people using levetiracetam or lococinide IV push instead of doing those in um, mini bags. Um, even with some of our dosing, I know where I'm at now, we do a lot of extended interval dosing for our beta lactam. Mm -hmm. So instead of four doses of Kipersil and Tazobactam a day, you're getting three and it's over four hours. And it used to be that we were doing it in 100 mils and now we're able to do it in 50. So I think people are getting a lot more conscious about how much volume um, are we getting from our meds and can we concentrate that? Can we give it IV plus to limit how much they're doing? I certainly think your study probably shined a light on that for sure. Um, cause that the over 60% when the first time I saw it, that was certainly unexpected. Um, is that like, I mean, was that when you, when you got the results, was that, was that an unexpected percentage when you, when you kind of like did an overview of your data? Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, we were expecting people to get a good amount of volume from their meds, like 63% was a lot. Yeah. But then when you start thinking about it, like you have a patient that comes in they get vancomycin. So, you know, you're starting with 250, if not 500 or 750 a day from that. You're putting them on, you know, Stepapim or Piperacillin Tazobactam or Miropenem, and that's going to be somewhere between, you know, 150 and 400 mils a day. You've got them on vasopressors as well, which are additional volume, electrolytes, additional volume. Um, so even like your kind of basic patient that comes in in shock, I don't, I guess they're not basic, but you yeah, know, yeah, yeah. some of our routine patients that come in in septic shock, um, they're automatically getting a pretty good amount of volume from their antibiotics, vasopressors, um, electrolytes. Um, and I feel like that those are just kind of the, the bare minimum things that they're going to get. So when I see the name insidious, I think of that creepy horror movie. I think it was in 2010. So was that your inspiration as well when making the title of your uh, research project? Uh, no, you can thank the title master, Dr. Alex Flannery for that one. Um, I was spending probably an, way too much time trying to figure out how to um, make a title that spelled diluent. I thought that was going to oh. be like really cool. Okay. That <laughs> so would be really cool to, like, for the record. Really <laughs> I was trying to like torture, um, capitalize <laughs> random letters in the middle of names. I was like, okay, dextrose, 
versus saline. Okay, saline's got an I and an L, but it's in the opposite order. So, uh, it, it, so I think I had spent so much time on that that Alex was like, we just got to scrap it. We're going with something else. He's like, how about insidious harm? And I'm like, oh, yeah, that sounds smart as I'm, like, Googling whatever insidious yeah. means. Um, <laughs> but that's kind of how we landed on that. I was working real hard to try and torture capitalized letters in the middle of words to spell out diluent, but it ended up just not working out. So we went with insidious harm. This is proof that the study can still be considered important if it doesn't have an acronym nickname. So uh, you were just a pioneer. You were a, you, you guys were pioneers. <laughs> um, so kind of closing out a little bit into like, where are we now? When you kind of reflect back on this, um, what would you say was like the most challenging part of, of prospective research compared to, I'm assuming probably your first year project was retrospective and I know you've done some since. So what was, what, what was probably the most challenging part? I think the most challenging part was my year was pretty front loaded with research stuff. So just figuring out, um, how to balance that with also figuring out how the heck to be a PGY2 um, was probably the most challenging part. I also think one of the other challenging parts was that we did it all via paper. So if I could go back to residency and do it again, not that anybody would ever want to do that, um, I would probably have leaned towards using something like REDCap or some sort of um, you know technology to help with. Um, keeping track of um, all of the patients. Um, but it, I think, honestly, a lot of it was prose as well. As, as I alluded to, I had some co-residents that still didn't have data back by the time I had already collected on all of these patients. Um, and so I think it's an interesting option if you're at an institution where you struggle with being able to get data in a timely manner. Um, and it's something that I've trialed here with a couple of my residents and you just, you have to have the manpower in order to collect all the data and have people that are committed to making sure that it gets done prospectively instead of like jotting people's names down and then retrospectively putting in whatever's on the chart. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's 13 people listed, right? So it took a, it took an army to get this done. You know, I'm sure you did a lot of the legwork, but if people weren't helping you, I'm sure we probably wouldn't be seeing this paper, even the results that we're talking about. Oh, 1000%. I was very lucky to have, you know, all of these MICU pharmacists that were super supportive, uh, a really impressive interdisciplinary team that let us do this. Um, pharmacists that worked, you know, all throughout the hospital and the central pharmacy that, um, that were on board. So it's 1000% of group effort. Um, and, and every single one of these authors is exceptionally deserving. All right. So what do you think if you had to pick between these two choices as a takeaway from this study, like which one do you think is the most appropriate takeaway? D5W should be the default medication diluent, or we need to work like focus on concentrating IV infusions and IV piggybacks. I think the, the second one, concentrating things, using, um, you know, using IV push if we can, limiting our fluids as best as possible. Some of the takeaways that I've taken into my practice are that I'm going to make the diluent that I'm using work for me. Like if I have a patient who's hyperfluoremic already or if they're hypernatremic, I may go ahead and change a bunch of my stuff to D5 um, just so that I'm making the fluid that they're getting work for me. 
Um, and what's also interesting is I feel, you know, as we've talked about the shift in critical care towards fluid stewardship and doing volume assessments for people, um, what's really funny is sometimes I feel like with antibiotics in particular, my team's like, oh, yeah, let's, let's keep broad spectrum for another day or so. But then if I say, oh, but they're getting like 500 mils a day from their vent, they're like, oh, my gosh, get rid of it. Um, so it's been, <laughs> it's been a really interesting um, de-escalation um, technique, um, both with de-escalating fluids, but also kind of getting rid of some of this stuff that we think may not be as, as necessary if we think the volume may be contributing to more harm. Hey, sometimes you got to get a little creative uh, to, to get your point across or accepted. So, I mean, I love that, right? That's, that's the, <laughs> a really, a really awesome point to kind of end on here. Uh, Carolyn, thanks so much again, uh, on Twitter at C McGee farm D appreciate you so much. And, uh, what an awesome study. I'm glad you, uh, you came on so we could highlight it. Yeah. Thanks for having me. Another huge, huge thanks to recurring guest, uh, Carolyn McGee bell, uh, let her know what she thinks. Remember on Twitter at C McGee farm D reach out to me. Let me know what you think at pharmacy to dose T O to dose. Find me on all the socials. If you want to send me an email pharmacy to dose at gmail.com and of course in that episode description as well as pharmacy the website you'll find a link to this article as well as the articles we discussed throughout the episode and until next time i'm nick peters and this is pharmacy to dose the critical care podcast The Critical Care PRN optimizes drug therapy outcomes by promoting excellence and innovation in clinical pharmacy practice, research, and education. For more information, go to critprn.accp.com. Again, that is critprn.accp.com. QXMD builds mobile solutions that drive evidence-based care in clinical practice. So check out READ for easy access to research personalized for you. Calculate for over 500 easy-to-use decision support tools and learn to earn CME online in minutes per day. Try them today at qxmd.com slash apps. Again, that is qxmd.com slash A-P-P-S. The podcast provides general information only and does not offer individualized medical or professional healthcare services, including pharmaceutical advice. The contents and materials in the podcast are not intended to be a substitute for inpatient pharmaceutical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Use of the contents and materials in the podcast does not constitute a pharmacist-patient relationship. As a result, the information in and materials linked to this podcast are applied at the user or patient's own risk. Users and patients should consult their physician or personal healthcare professional. Users or patients should not ignore or delay seeking care because of something they heard on this podcast. In case of an emergency, the user or patient should contact their physician, call 911, or go to the nearest medical emergency facility. The views and statements expressed on this podcast are those of the host and guests and should not be interpreted to reflect the official position or policy of ACCP or the Critical Care PRN. ACP and the Critical Care PRN disclaim any and all liability or responsibility for any direct, indirect, incidental, special, consequential, or any other damages, including without limitation, loss of profits arising out of any use of reference to, reliance on, or inability to use the podcast, its contents, and materials.